This is the STEM Read Podcast. Welcome to the STEM Read Podcast. I'm your host, Jillian King Cargyle. I'm a writer, a book lover, and the director of STEM Read. This episode is The Space Station Mom and the Stunt Woman. Our guests are NASA leader Ryan Prouty and sci fi author S.L. Huang. On May 30th, 2020, the United States launched a manned spacecraft into low Earth orbit for the first time in nine years. SpaceX is now the first private company to launch NASA astronauts into space from U.S. soil. The astronauts are heading to the International Space Station. And how did this happen? With ingenuity? Yes. With bravery? Certainly. And also, with a whole lot of math. As we celebrate this historic flight that could be the next step in human exploration of the moon and even Mars, we're going to highlight two women whose love of math took them on unexpected journeys of their own. The first is Ryan Prouty. Ryan Prouty is now the Assistant Director for Strategy and Vision at NASA's Johnson Space Center, but for the past 23 years she was a key team member and then leader of NASA's International Space Station program. Kristen Brentison and I interviewed Ryan Prouty in the months leading up to this historic launch. After our interview with Ryan, I'll talk to S.L. Huang, whose own love of math took her from MIT to a career as a Hollywood stuntwoman. Huang now shares her love of math through action-packed sci-fi books about a math genius and mercenary, Cass Russell. The latest in the series is Critical Point from Tor Publishing. You'll hear my interview with S.L. Huang later in the show, but first, here's Kristen Brentison and I interviewing NASA's Ryan Prouty. My name is Ryan Prouty, and I live just south of Houston, Texas, and my job at NASA, I had someone come up to me after a talk once and call me the mom of ISS, (laughs) and I just laughed because it was so true. I get to do all the important planning just like we would be going on a vacation where I get to say where we're going, when we're going, what we're packing, and what we do while we're away from home. And my job at NASA in the space station program is really to do that. So I'm one of the managers in space station, and my organization does all of the launch vehicle planning. So when we launch all of our rockets to the space station, what we pack in those rockets and what the crew does with everything we send them once it arrives on orbit. So I get to do all the planning, all the packing, and all the play. Wow. Now... I have planned a family vacation of four to Disney World, and I know what goes into that. I cannot even imagine what goes (laughs) in. (laughs) It takes me like two days to get to my parents' house, which is an hour away. So, (laughs) Yeah. So fortunately, I don't have to do all that. (laughs) I get, I, you know, one of the best parts about my job, and this is my favorite thing to tell people, is my, I see my role at this point in my career to set the vision and expectations for my organization. And I am surrounded by people who work for me who are passionate and driven and smart and absolutely love what they do. And they do a fantastic job. Working for NASA it would be like a childhood dream. I, I know growing up in you know the 70s and 80s, it was just amazing to think about. So is that true for you? Was this something you always saw yourself doing? How did you end up at NASA? People expect that I grew up with stars in my eyes and I knew, always knew that's what I wanted to do. My personal story is 
very unconventional. I did not grow up expecting to work for NASA or be an astronaut. I did grow up loving math, and I was really, really good at it. So by the time I got to college and chosen my major as math, I grew up in Wyoming, by the way. So while I say I didn't dream of working at NASA, I absolutely loved to be outside at night looking up at the sky because you can see everything. And it's just mesmerizing. So it inspired me, but I didn't know to do what. But I got to college and I majored in math. And to be honest, I kind of played the game. I was from a small state. I was a female and I was good in a field where there were not a lot of females. So I knew that I would be able to get a job anywhere I needed in order to support myself and continue my life wherever it was going to go. That being said, once I graduated, I had no idea what I wanted to do. So I had this grand plan (laughs) to move to Jackson Hole, Wyoming and become a ski bum. My dad was so proud. Um, But he used to tease me. He's like, you're not going to make it through the first season. And I like to tease him back because he was wrong. I did not even make it to ski season. (laughs) I got bored right around August and I was motivated to apply for NASA after a chance encounter, honestly going to an appointment to get my hair cut. I sat down in the waiting room. Next to me, there was a magazine with this old, decrepit, really beat up looking space station on the cover. And I was like, what in the world is that? I thought it was maybe some new science fiction movie that was coming out or whatever. I didn't know. I picked it up and I started thumbing through this article and it happened to be a picture of the Russian space station Mir. And inside this magazine was this story of movies that you see coming out of Hollywood with adventure and dire consequences and heroics, right? So they had just sent up this cargo ship to their space station. It had crashed into the side of the space station and caused it to start losing pressure. And the crews had to go through their emergency procedures to close all the hatches to not only save the space station, but save themselves. And I'm sitting there in the middle of Wyoming reading this article going, how do I not know this is going on in the world? (laughs) I need to get my head out of the clouds and figure out what I want to do. And the very last paragraph of this article talked about this brand new endeavor that NASA was going to partner with the Russians to build an international space station. And anyone interested could contact some number. And in that moment, I was like, I'm in. (laughs) That sounds like something challenging and something bigger than myself. And so I went home and I, this is when we had to type resumes, typed up my resume, mailed it off. Three months later, I moved to Texas with my dog, not knowing a soul. And that was 22 years ago. Wow. I know I was kind of reading up on on the space station. I was surprised that it's been up there for over 20 years. That's crazy, right? It is. It's hard for me to believe that I, that, yes, number one, it's hard for me to believe I've lived in Texas that long, but Number two, it's incredible to think about everything we've done and how far we've come with this unbelievable vehicle. So did you think that after sitting there reading this article, waiting to get your hair cut, that now 20 some odd years later, you're a part of that big, amazing thing? No, actually, I get goosebumps when you say that. <laughs> it, it Honestly, it still blows my mind. As we think about the last 20 years of, of the International Space Station, what are some of the ways that it has impacted science and just everyday life? I love this question. and There's so many things to go into, but I'm going to start somewhere else first. I personally believe that ISS is the single most technologically advanced international endeavor of its kind, maybe, maybe of all time, to be able to take 15 different countries to work together 
to build different pieces of the space station that when we all put them together on orbit, they fit perfectly the first time we tried and none of the pieces were ever put together on the ground. Just conceptually thinking about that just blows my mind. And I think one of the long lasting legacies of space station will be our international relationships and cooperation and how we have managed that interface across country boundaries over time in the ever-changing world that we see on our TVs every night when we go home really, to me, is a mark in history. And that's completely separate from all the science. Right. On the science side, I always tell people who work for me to go find something that hits them personally that they can learn about. And, and one for me, I have a friend of mine whose child is going through cancer treatments and one of the things we're doing on, and this, this is literally one of hundreds, every time we send up a crew for six months at a time, they're doing hundreds of science experiments in the time they're on board. But some of the ones we're doing are studying, for example, new drug deliveries for uh, chemo drugs that lessen the debilitating side effects of the chemotherapy hitting healthy cells instead of just the cancer cells. Wow. We're doing plant growth experiments to find efficient and healthy growth of plants, how to be more efficient in growing these plants to feed the world's growing population. We've utilized ISS technology to clean and recycle water in third world countries that don't have enough clean water for their people. We have utilized ISS technologies in robotics applications that Canada primarily does for us as a partner for certain brain surgeries that are just not possible with human hands. We're studying the effects of climate change on our fragile planet. We're learning about new combustion technologies for more clean, burning, more efficient cars. And the list just goes on and on and on. The hard thing about science, which you guys will understand in your field, is I believe that space station will keep giving back to us, to humanity, long after space station is done. It takes years and years to really understand the data we're getting back, to assess the samples we're getting back, to really know what it's telling us long term. That helps to put it in perspective. You hear about the things happening on the space station. You see the YouTube videos of the astronauts um, and the researchers interacting. But you really don't think about the advances and the amount of data that's being collected and just the questions that they're up there answering. And it's... right. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. <laughs> yes, and we could, right? We could be getting data back mm -hmm. that's not answering the questions we asked. We could be getting data back that's giving us answers to something we haven't even thought of yet. Right, and opening and, up new questions. It, yeah, exactly, exactly. With all of these things happening on the space station, what's the process for getting them resupplied and sending things up? And then obviously, I'm guessing things have to come back. So what, yeah. what does that process even look like? That is my daily life. <laughs> that, is, that is what I do. And we currently have five different launch vehicles that we launch from three different countries. In the next two years, we're going to be adding three new vehicles on top of that. So in, let's say, in a year span, we send four what we call crew rotation flights. We launch three Russian cargo flights, one Japanese cargo flight, and around four to five U.S. commercial flights a year. And all of those flights carry different kinds of cargo based on what they're capable of carrying. And we decide what goes up based on a number of factors. So we do projections for kind of your, I'll say, daily living and maintenance. How much food, clothes, 
provisions, water, et cetera, does the crew need to keep surviving on the space station? That's one thing we look at. We look at what do we need to send up to keep the vehicle operating? You know, we always need spare parts. It's just like taking your car into the shop and getting an oil change. There are different piece parts that have to be changed out on a regular basis. So we project when we're going to have failures and we make sure we have spares on board to go change out. And then the last one, most important, and what we've been talking about a little bit, is what are we trying to accomplish? ISS Space Station exists for the purpose of making discoveries and building a commercial economy in low Earth orbit. And so as a government entity, we have customers out across the nation, across the world, that are trying to accomplish their objectives. And they have needs for what they want to go, we call it manifest, but for what they want to pack on the rockets and launch. And so we are here to understand their requirements of when they want to do their experiments and try and meet that need. It's a huge jigsaw puzzle to try and fit all that together and use our priorities to understand what needs to launch when and make it fit with the vehicles we have. We have much more capability of launching items to the space station than we have of bringing things home. Mm -hmm. So we have the Japanese vehicles, the Russian cargo vehicles, and one of the U.S. cargo vehicles are what we call our disposal vehicles, and they can bring trash off the space station. Right now, we only have from the U.S. side our SpaceX vehicles, the only one that can bring cargo home, and it's a limited amount of cargo. And so we're looking forward to getting um, a couple of our new vehicles flying from the U.S. so we can increase our capability to bring samples and hardware for refurbishment home with the crews or even on cargo flights that come home. You always loved math. It sounds like there's a lot of math involved in this. There can be, yes. You know, looking at our predictions and looking at our models and learning how to make the right assumptions for usage rates. We plan for food, for example. We plan for how much we believe the crews should be eating based on their energy output and how long they're going to be on board. And then we track that. And we see if they're eating less, maybe we produce less, maybe we launch less. And if they're eating more, we ramp up production and launch more. And so doing that balance over time, we do some good algebra, (laughs) for sure. (laughs) So you will use it again in the future. (laughs) You will. I get get asked this a lot. Do you use your major? And okay, so right now I have really smart people who work for me and they, they go do all their calculations. But I have to know enough to know that, okay, their calculations are accurate. I did use my degree. I'll never forget this. I had just gotten here and I'd only been here about two weeks. And quite literally, I was still trying to figure out what everybody was talking about in the meetings because everybody at NASA speaks in acronyms. And I would sit in these staff meetings and have no idea (laughs) what anyone had just said. And I was walking down the hall one day and there's this gentleman, I could barely remember his name. I hadn't been there very long, says, I need your help. I'm like, you need my help. He goes, yeah, you majored in math, right? I said, yes. He goes, well, we're trying to write this algorithm, but none of us can remember how to do it. And it was this very simple truncation algorithm to get the, and don't laugh, VCR tapes on the space station to stop recording and rewind and start over. (laughs) And no one could remember how to do it. I was like, oh, I got that. I can do that. (laughs) That's funny. I've been reading up a little bit about some of the things that do go up to space that help support these experiments. So what's the weirdest thing that you have sent up? Oh, what's funny. So you preface that with experiments. You know, we've launched, we've launched fish and we've launched fruit flies and we launched rodents and kidney cells and heart cells and all this sciencey stuff. But honestly, to me, some of the weirdest stuff is 
some of the fun stuff that we launch for the crew. You know, part of my job is to keep the crews happy so they go do good work for us. Mm -hmm. So we have launched pizza kits and I launch ice cream and I launch musical instruments for the crews up there. And some of this is even related to educational outreach activities and what the crew does based on different programs or initiatives that are going on down here. It's the reason we have such fun YouTube videos of them to watch, right? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So as we think about the outreach and think about both those kids that see themselves maybe someday working for NASA or those that think the only way to work for NASA is to be an astronaut, what are some of the different jobs that they could do and what should they be doing in school to prepare for that? This is another one of my favorite questions. (laughs) You name it, we have it. I I actually wrote out and listed the degrees of the people that I work with on a normal basis. Mathematicians, engineers, lawyers, artists, communication TV personalities, photographers, scientists, physicists, human resource specialists, chemists, writers. I always tell my engineering classes, don't stop taking English. (laughs) There are incredibly smart engineers all over NASA. But if we cannot understand what they're trying to tell us, we're not going to get anywhere. Yep. I need everyone to keep taking English classes. <laughs> we say that when we when we do um, engineering design challenges, because my background's engineering as well. I was an industrial engineer. And we always say, you know, engineers can come up with the best solutions, but if they can't communicate them, they haven't yes. solved anything. <laughs> yes. That's exactly right. So what advice would you give to both the, the kids who, who see NASA as a goal, but also to educators and parents and librarians who are around those kids? For the educators and the parents, primarily share with them. I think for me, while I looked up at the stars at night and was inspired and amazed, I don't know that I ever had anyone say to me, you could work for NASA one day. So it just never even dawned on me that that was a possibility. And I was a kid, so I was dense and didn't come up with it (laughs) on my own until much later. But my advice when the kids ask me is a little bit different. And I guess this goes for educators too, but they need to find their passion. They need to find what really makes them feel whole what fires them up inside, what makes them excited to get up every day. Because if they can be excited to jump out of bed every day to come to a job that they love, they will excel at that job. They will see where they fit when they like what they do. And my my philosophy is, for me, if I like what I'm doing, I'm going to be good at it, and people will see that. And so it's this self-perpetuating philosophy or way of being that can help kids be successful as they get into life and really try to understand where they fit. I think that is fantastic advice. It's really fun to watch some of the kids that we work with through STEM Read who read these fiction books and then make connections between things they read in a story and say, wow, that's there's actually a career and I, I could do that. And that would be so cool. Exactly. And NASA tends to do a pretty good job in general, always putting out there just on their website, nasa.gov, you can start poking around and find education's a huge piece of trying to inspire the next generation for what's coming for us in exploration. You just heard our interview with Ryan Prouty, one of the visionary leaders of the International Space Station program. Ryan is now the Assistant Director for Strategy and Vision at NASA's Johnson Space Center.
It's amazing to think how far Ryan Prouty's love of math has taken her and how lucky it was for NASA that Ryan happened to be reading a magazine about the Mir space station all those years ago. It was also awe-inspiring to watch the SpaceX launch and to see what truly great things we as human beings can do when we overcome challenges together. I also love that Ryan gave a shout-out to us English folks. As we push forward in STEM, we can't forget that communicating STEM and helping spread STEM literacy in all forms are crucially important in educating learners of all ages. That's why I'm so excited that this summer we're hosting STEM Reads Science Plus Fiction Virtual Summer Camp. This July, teens can join STEM Read and meet best-selling authors and STEM professionals as we explore science and fiction and work to create science fiction stories of our own. One of the experts joining us during the virtual camp is M.T. Anderson, award-winning author of books such as Feed and Landscape with Invisible Hand. This summer, we're focusing on aliens and space. You can learn more about this camp and all of the virtual camps from Northern Illinois University at niusteamcamps.com. Up next is my interview with sci-fi author S.L. Huang. Huang is the author of the Cass Russell series, which includes Zero Sum Game, Null Set, and the latest book, Critical Point. I interviewed S.L. Huang live on location at C2E2 in Chicago. Thanks to Tor Books and C2E2 for making the interview possible. Just start at the beginning. So what were you like as a student? I was one of those really obnoxious students who really loved learning. You know, I would just always be like wanting to do the homework and stuff. Uh, as long as I liked the class, you know, there was always that, that odd class where like I, I just didn't get along with the material or the teacher or something and I would get kind of rebellious in those. But like science and math especially has always been so fun for me and like joyous for me. I've done a lot of teaching of like math and science, tutoring and also classroom teaching. And one of the things I love about doing that sort of thing is being able to share that joy of it with people. And even people who don't really like math, it's not their thing or whatever, which is totally fine. But I've been able to help people sort of find that fun in it because it can be really fun. It can be really neat to see how these things work. And I just love like interacting with the universe that way. So then you went into math, is that right? Or did being a stunt woman come in? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I majored in math at MIT, which was, a, I mean, I didn't even really know what I wanted to do with it. I was just like, this is so cool. I think I wanted to study it and like do math. You know, no, nobody was really talking to me about career options. I didn't really know what that was going to be. And then when I was graduating, I was starting to like get really burned out because, you know, MIT is kind of an intense school. And the type of math I'd been studying was kind of like, well, I could go to graduate school, I could become a professor. And that didn't sound actually appealing to me. I just like wanted to play with it, <laughs> which they don't pay you for. <laughs> so um, my other love has always been performing. And I actually minored in theater arts. And I'd been doing all this athletic stuff and you know, like sword fighting. And I actually remember I was like standing on campus and I called my mom. And I was like, so this this really expensive education that you just helped pay for. What would you think if I went out to Hollywood and gave that a try? <laughs> and my mom, bless her, was like, I think that's a great idea. You should totally do that. So I did. And that's, how, that's when I went into stunts in Los Angeles. 
I don't even know where to go from there. That's, <laughs> that's amazing. It, it almost seems like you were like, all right, at some point in the future, I'm going to write some crazy sci-fi books. So I need all of the training. Like, what is the... <laughs> well, I, you know, I say to people sometimes that these books are like the books only I would have written. Because uh, when I was first writing the, the first book in the series, Zero Sum Game, people would ask me what it was about. And at the time, I was working as a stunt woman and as an armorer for movies and television. An armorer being like the weapons expert who brings firearms on and trains all the actors and all that. And uh, people would ask me, oh, you're writing a, a book? That's cool. What's it about? And I'd be like, oh, math and guns. And they'd kind of look at me and be like, only you would write a book like that. <laughs> so, you know, they're very action-packed thrillers, but also trying to share that love of math and science that I just want to share with people, even if doing math isn't your jam, to be able to sort of see that and come along with me on that ride. Right. And it seems like very practical math. I, I saw one of the clips of you reading, I think it was the first book, where she's she's tied to a chair and she's like, okay, if I calculate <laughs> this, you know, I'll he'll split my lip and not break my jaw or something <laughs> yeah. like that. So that practical math. So how do you think books like yours can interest kids in math or adults in math? Well, I think I think math gets a really bad rap in society, right? Like we were like, oh, you know, math. We don't want to be doing math. That's boring, whatever. And I think just uh, making it okay to say like, no, this is cool is like actually a pretty huge thing. And even though these are books that are written for adults, you know, there's there's quite a lot of, you know, violence and profanity and stuff. I wouldn't necessarily, uh, you know, recommend them to, to elementary schoolers or anything like that. You know, especially as like teenagers and especially young women coming up who love math and science, um, being able to see that in fiction as something that's that's a, a cool thing. That's a like, oh, this is this is neat stuff, and it's not just this like boring thing that people are going to make fun of me for. But just being able to have that space in fiction, I, I think, is uh, is really important. Yeah, and let's talk about that a little bit more because being a math major, being an armorer, you know, a stunt person, those are not traditionally female careers. So, what um, do you see this as a way to widen pathways for young women? Uh, you know, I would love that. You know, one book can't ever do everything to change the world, right? But I like to think that every time we put something out there in fiction, every time we put something out there in the popular media landscape, it's just that like one more little drop that's like widening the way people can see ourselves. And I was very intentional in making my lead character in this series a woman of color, as, as I am as well. And especially making her kind of a violent anti-heroine kind of but but one we still really root for because we don't get a lot of those kinds of characters in fiction speaking as a an underrepresented minority person like I growing up I just never saw a lot of that and, and again like my books aren't going to be like you know and I wouldn't want them to be the one thing that's that way in the world the one thing that people can point to because we need all the stories, you know, we need all, all the types of characters from all the demographics so that everybody can see themselves in, in myriad ways in fiction. And I just hope I can be one small part of that. <laughs> well, absolutely. And you've described your books as being one step into the future. So how do you research the science, the technology behind it? Um, <laughs> and, you know, where do you draw those ideas from? Sometimes I call these like contemporary science fiction because it's, it's kind of of our world, but but different. You know, we've got these superpowers that are like uh, mathematical superpowers, and and as you know, as the books go on, we see other types of superpowers, but very grounded in our reality. 
But I actually do a ton of research for these books. I do a ton of research into that, like one step into the future of what might be possible. When I'm talking about a, a, a math or science or engineering concept, I, I really want to look up and make sure that I'm not saying, you know, I'm not talking about something that just, you know, would never even be possible in like science 300 years in the future. I just want to keep it grounded. And I also, I actually do the math in the books. Like the, the main character is always, um, you know, she's always using her mathematical superpowers to, you know, win fights and to, you know, to do amazing superpower things. Uh, you know, I don't put this all in the book because that would, you know, kind of bog it down. But I actually do all the math to make sure that what I'm saying is realistic. <laughs> and it's fine. You know, I'll just spend an afternoon like doing math on like scrap paper in my office. And then in the book, it'll end up like three lines, <laughs> you know, where we see her do the thing. <laughs> do you get feedback about the math? Does anybody want to see your work? I've been really gratified that non-math people will email me or come up to me at events and say, oh, I'm not a math person, but I loved your book. But math people will also say, like, oh, I'm such a math person and I loved your book. I love that I get both of those. There's only, I've only had one person express disappointment and uh, there was somebody on Twitter who was um, disappointed that there weren't formulas in the book. They expected like complicated LaTeX formulas as being like part of the fiction. And I said, I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint you that I didn't put that in. <laughs> Where's the worksheets at the I, back of the book? Right, right. <laughs> Next time. We'll talk to Tor. We'll work it out. Um, <laughs> so What's the thing that you're worried about when you're researching it that you're like, uh, if someone finds out I'm researching this, I'm going to be on a watch list? Oh, there are so many of those. <laughs> there are so many of those. I worry sometimes like about my Google searches, you know, and I have the, the Tor browser on my computer just in case I'm researching something like really kind of sketchy. But I'm constantly, you know, plugging in like, oh, you know, how many days does it take for a corpse to start smelling? You know, like stuff like that. Or, you know, what's the explosive yield of this type of bomb? And I'm like, oh, my God. I'm, I swear I'm not actually, you know, <laughs> doing anything dangerous. Sometimes I think I should type into Google, like, NSA, I'm a writer. I swear. Just, yeah. just disregard all these searches. <laughs> Asking for a friend. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. I, this could be why it took you so long to get through security at C2E2. They, <laughs> they had you marked there. Yeah. But, you know, happily, because I'm out of uh, stunts and weapons, I actually have a lot of friends who have specific types of knowledge that are quite rare that I can call up and be like, okay, if I need a sniper rifle for this particular situation, you know, check me on this. What do you think of, you know, choosing this? And they'll, you know, dialogue with me. So I'm very lucky that way. <laughs> then it's good friends to have. Yes. Yes, uh, indeed. So what is your pitch for kids who might not be interested in math to get them really excited about math? Maybe teens, mm -hmm. you know, middle school, high school kids kids. Give us your best math pitch. I would say what I love about it is the elegance of how we can see pieces of the universe, pieces of the truths of the universe. And if that's a little bit too froofy for you, um, one thing that I really love to do with students when I'm teaching is relate it to their lives. You know, we all have, it, it's such a cliche to say like math is everywhere in our daily lives, but it really is. And the, the, the statistics we see around us everywhere, uh, you know, or even just like how we, how we make decisions in our daily life, but also math connecting to itself and connecting to other scientific disciplines. You know, sometimes I'll show my students like the way these pieces connect to each other and they'll be like oh that's so cool so yeah find find the pieces of it that excite you 
and read about those, be interested in those. And math has so many nooks and crannies that are different and have really exciting pieces to them. Like there are all these paradoxes that you could look up and be like, wait, how does that work? Or unsolved problems that we just, we don't know the answer to. And mathematicians' history is so fascinating as well. Like there are all these disputes and like dramas and duels between mathematicians in history because mathematicians are super emotional. Like don't listen <laughs> to anybody who tells you we're, we're like logical. No, like it, there's all this like incredible drama history historically about mathematics. I really wish people would teach this more and I hope that if people are, you know, looking for something to be interested in in mathematics that they can look some of this stuff up and just what all the interesting little nooks and crannies and find something to be excited about. Well, now I have to ask a follow-up question then. Do you have a favorite mathematician feud in history? Oh, there's some really good ones. I would have to say that one of my favorites is the story of Galois, which is not actually a mathematician feud between two mathematicians. Like uh, Newton and Leibniz is very um, famous for being like they were at each other's throats because they both claimed to have invented calculus. Um, but Galois, Galois is really interesting. He invented a very large chunk of modern algebra. And he was a young man in, oh, I'm, I'm bad with dates, but I forget when, you know, uh, quite a while ago. There was a, a, a dispute over a young woman. And uh, he was challenged to a duel, or he challenged the other guy to a duel, I forget. But the night before the duel, he stays up, like, the entire night writing out a huge chunk of what we now recognize as modern algebra, like, a whole lot of it. And he's writing, 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 and in the margins he's writing, I have not time, I have not time, right? <laughs> he stays up the whole night doing this. Goes to the duel the next morning and is killed, dead, right? 21 years old. Oh my gosh. And I just like, I mean, first of all, it's like such a dramatic story, but it's also such a waste because you think, well, if he'd just like gotten some sleep, you know, maybe he would have survived. And um, I'm laughing. I shouldn't laugh. It's a tragic story. But it's just like one of these really, um, like these, these fascinating dramas that we have in the history of mathematics. Right. Oh man, that is intense. Yeah, it's really intense. <laughs> Thank you so much Thank for you. Uh, talking with us today. And we're excited to share your books with more people. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. You just heard my interview with sci-fi author S.L. Huang. Her latest book is Critical Point from Tor Books. I love her quote, we need all stories. With everything that's happening in the world right now, we definitely need all stories, all the voices to be heard. A book about a female mercenary with math superpowers might not change the world, but it's another way of seeing math lovers and female main characters. And it's a lot of fun. This was a really cool episode to put together because our guests were so different and their lives had such different trajectories, but the common denominator in their stories was their love of math. Keep studying math. Keep looking up and moving forward. We need intelligent people who listen to the facts and understand science to help us create a better life on this world and help us reach the next one. Thanks to our guests, Ryan Prouty and S.L. Huang. You can find more information about them in our show notes. And if you enjoy conversations about the connections between STEM and storytelling, check out stemread.com for updates on our Future Telling Science Plus Fiction webinar series. Later this summer, we'll be hosting live panel discussions with authors like M.T. Anderson and S.L. Huang and STEM experts like Rebecca C. Thompson. These conversations are geared towards writers, STEM experts, and STEM and writing enthusiasts. Look for updates on the Future Telling webinar series at stemread.com.
The STEM Read podcast is produced in association with WNIJ. Support for the STEM Read podcast comes from NIU STEAM and Northern Illinois University. Your future, our focus. If you like what you hear, leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening and stay safe.